It doesn't just happen overnight. The perimenopause can occur over a decade. And women can often feel bewildered as to the change in them, into the fact they can't sleep, they get agitated, their memory can fail, they can't concentrate. We talk about um, changes in the menstrual cycle and we, we talk about changes in skin uh, and we talk about these other physical changes. But actually, women have estrogen receptors in the brain. And, and so when estrogen becomes depleted, it can affect mental function and psychological symptoms. That's Dr. Hilary Jones. He's a GP, familiar face on British daytime TV, as well as perhaps less well-known as a newbie novelist, weaving much of his medical knowledge into storytelling. This is the Lizelle Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all live a better second half of life. I'm Liz Earl, and I'm on a bit of a mission to find ways for us all to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. Now, I first met Dr. Hilary Jones on the well-worn sofa of daytime television, where he was already the established TV doctor, and I covered the kind of slightly fluffier side of life, my bag being much more about beauty, natural remedies, and even fashion back in those days. And we were often pitched against each other, as my approach was seen as a bit quirkier, a bit less conventional. But what we do share is a common thread of highlighting many of the healthcare issues that we're all facing, regardless of how we choose to treat them. In fact, I was heartened that we recently bumped into each other at an event hosted by the Swiss naturopathic healthcare company, the brand A. Vogel, and they were investigating the clinically proven powers of the plant remedy Echinacea when it comes to combating coughs, colds and the many flu viruses of all kinds that surround us at the moment. So perhaps we are not so far apart at all and we will be chatting a little bit more on that later. Well, it was at this event that I discovered even more about this familiar face on our TV screens, not knowing that he has just published his second riveting novel set around the time of the First World War that naturally draws on his own medical background as well as his family's own experience during those dreadful times. Hillary's actually written a number of non-fiction medical books over the years and as I say he is now embarking on a literary foray into the world he knows well, that of medicine. But set in and around World War One, I, I am fascinated by his fascination with the story of medicine, past and present and so I'm keen for this chat to cover both the current state of medical play as well as how we got here. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hilary, it was so good to bump into you again. Uh, that was at a recent press event outside, actually, of the TV studios, a place where we first met. Well, it must be well over 20 years ago, I think. You haven't aged, though, I must say. <laughs> well, nor have you. And, uh, there's a reason for that. <laughs> we do invest in how we look and feel for sure but it was really interesting to catch up with you again there and I know that later in this chat we will talk more about how you came to be well I think possibly the most famous face of TV medicine and we'll also chat about the current state of GP services which I know is something very close to your heart but right now I'm really interested to hear about how you came into your most recent incarnation and that of a novelist <laughs> well it was purely by chance i was very busy in the uh, good morning britain studio answering incessant questions from piers morgan and susanna <laughs> reed about the pandemic oh well done um, and it was during that time that almost as an antidote to 24 7 news about covid19 that the idea uh, about a novel came to me via uh, somebody called Kerr McRae, a literary agent. And there were so many parallels between the frontline workers that were doing so much and, and were being applauded on people's doorsteps and the frontline um, soldiers of the First World War in which my grandfather fought. Right. That I thought um, it would be an interesting exercise to to write a book about military and medical history at that time but also make it into a romance mm -hmm. uh, to talk about the parallels between the Spanish flu of 1918, which killed 50 million people or more and came out of the blue, just like this pandemic. Yeah. And so the title of Frontline came to me and in spare moments between talking about COVID-19, I, I started writing and I, I really enjoyed the exercise. Very therapeutic, actually, to, to use a different part of your brain and, and to be, I guess, preoccupied with something else, because, as you say, you were in the thick of it for so long. Well, just like you, I'd written medical books. I'd written books that were factual. And I found being creative and writing dialogue and bringing stories to life fascinating and challenging and interesting. And I, I as I researched the stories of the time, I, I, I became absolutely entrenched in the developments and the fact that war by necessity creates new medical developments. It, it accelerates them and improves them. So, for example, the you know thousands, tens of thousands of men lost limbs during the First World War through wounds and infections, and yet prosthetics were in their infancy. And within a short few years, the the efficacy of prosthetic limbs improved dramatically as a result of the need to do it. Yes, through that awful need. It's a bit like, I think, in the Second World War, the advance of cosmetic surgery, plastic surgery, really happened because of all the poor airmen who were shot down and so badly burnt. That's right. And, Absolutely and needed right. reconstructive surgery. And yeah. that kind of triggered all that, didn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, there were pioneers in their field who tried new techniques, um, you know, many of which are still used today as the basis of cosmetic um, surgery and aesthetic um, practice. And it's fascinating how it develops. And of course, you know, people were thrown in at the deep end. The Second World War also brought about the necessity for the massive production of penicillin 
which until 1943-44 was really not available to the general population. And a fifth of people still died at a, a young age of infection because we didn't have antibiotics. Yeah. And it wasn't that long ago um, no. that that was the case. Your book is is really good, I have to say. Uh, I shouldn't sound surprised. You. And, and you've had some high praise indeed. Geoffrey Archer, for example, says of your book, the doctor hit the spot and deserves to be read. Is having a voice on the fiction page something that you've always kind of secretly wanted? Yes. I mean, I was lucky to have had a, a really good education at Latimer School where I studied arts A-levels, actually, instead of doing science, as most doctors do to begin with. I was at school with, with people like the late Mel Smith, who, who went on to become a, a, an author, a, play, yeah. a, a playwright and a, and a comedy actor. And we had a fantastic drama department and I could easily have gone down that route, but I was subsequently encouraged to pursue a career in medicine. But I think I've always used that that love of the written word and of drama to want to write a novel. So when the opportunity came along, I grabbed it. Well, the novels that you've written follow a preeminent medical family. And I know from talking to you kind of off camera, if you like, that your own grandfather was a soldier sent to the Somme, not once, but three times. Did that family history influence your writing? Oh, very much so. Um, my mother still has a photograph of uh, my grandfather at the foot of her bed in his uniform. Really? He fought at the Battle of the Somme. He was wounded three times and was sent back to fight three times after Gosh. rehabilitation. And we Can still you imagine that? <laughs> I mean, being being sent back, knowing what you're going back to, that hell that you were, that you came from, that having to go back carnage. three times. And we still have the German bullet that penetrated his neck and obviously oh. from which he survived. So, yeah, it was a particularly poignant uh, story for me, um, researching that and the conditions in the trenches and the terrible mm. attrition that um, took so many hundreds of thousands of lives. And it, it did it, it did occur to me that soldiers who had survived that onslaught then were subjected to the ravages of the Spanish flu, which of 200,000 people in the UK alone died of the Spanish flu. And interestingly, Liz, it was it was young, healthy people who succumbed perhaps more so than young and elderly that we would normally see affected by things like um, flu viruses Mm. and we think it was because they had such an overwhelming immune reaction that that basically their lungs flooded with fluid of course we had no antibiotics to treat secondary infection and we we didn't fully understand transmission of viruses like that at the time so it was a steep learning curve. And also, I imagine that everybody who returned from that literal hell on earth will have been so traumatised. And we know now the, the effect of things like trauma on our immune system and, and lowering it. So they were adversely affected in any case. And actually, you've raised before issues such as PTSD. And isn't it staggering to hear that back in the day when your book is set, even the very word of shell shock was actually banned. It was. It was banned by the British Army till 1916. There was a fear that should soldiers be given an excuse for turning their back on the battlefield, that others would follow suit and they needed as many soldiers in the trenches as they could muster. So people who were suffering clearly from shell shock, whose mind just wasn't there, and who were wandering about confused and dazed, some of them would have been shot for desertion. Oh, many of them so tragic. had 
um, sentences commuted, but some didn't. And one of the themes in, in, in my book is the theme of a soldier who had won awards for bravery in, in other fields of, of warfare and fought in France and in Flanders and would have suffered shell shock. And my character in, in the book is, is shot for desertion because he can't defend himself. And it was a summary execution. And <sighs> this almost certainly happened. So even today, PTSD is still poorly understood. Uh, there are a lot of servicemen who are suffering from it and probably not supported as, as well as they should be. So it's an enduring theme, which which hopefully I can pursue in in the next book. Very interesting. So this is a saga, is it, that's going to run and run? Yeah, I, I, I hope it'll be a saga, a bit like um, a, a combination of Foyle's War and Downton. And, oh, brilliant. <laughs> yes. And, 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 and Brideshead and, and the... <laughs> yeah. The book between the two wars is is about the the social the, the massive social change the suffragette movement. There's the uh, IRA. There's so much going on, but yeah. also you've got a small elite who are spending money like it's going out of fashion, despite the poverty elsewhere. There are still parallels today with all of that. Yes. Oh my goodness. And actually, thinking about veterans and and trauma therapy. Have you worked with more recent veterans and, and is trauma therapy changing? Are we more aware of it and, and more able to help, do you think? Yes, we are. We do understand more clearly that a huge amount of support is required, not just socially, but psychologically. If you've lived with the loss of the traumatic loss of friends, colleagues, comrades, if you've been under constant shellfare in fear of your life, not being able to sleep, it certainly takes its toll. And those people need ongoing help to deal with aggression, which can apparently come from nowhere, anxiety, depression. And of course, we see a lot of self-harm and, and suicide in people who are subjected to these kind of traumas. And there's plenty of trauma in the world today. So we still need greater understanding in mental health generally, but, but especially um, for for war veterans who've been through that um, that sort of experience. One of the things that I've been looking at more closely recently, which I find completely fascinating, I'd be interested to hear your take on it, is the role of psychedelics. And there's a New York investigative journalist called Michael Pollan who's done a, a brilliant series, I think, on Netflix called How to Change Your Mind. And he's looking at the therapeutic things uh, like, or the therapeutic use of things like LSD MDMA, psilocybin. I mean, it, it, it's extraordinary how these things could have the capacity to unlock trauma. And I, I, I have read of studies being done with, with veterans on this very thing. Yeah, well, we repurpose drugs all the time. So drugs that we've used for one thing can sometimes be very effective for another. I think we can all remember that thalidomide was a very dirty word because it caused so much uh, damage uh, in terms of limb development in offspring to mothers who took thalidomide as an anti-sickness drug. And then we discovered subsequently that it had these disastrous side effects. But now we use thalidomide as an anti-cancer treatment. Really? For the same reason that it stopped limbs developing, it stops cancer growing. Isn't that fascinating? So, so we can repurpose drugs in that way. And we look at that all the time. You know, could this drug be useful for that? And again, you know, fascinating research that I found for my book where, for example, 
people were given, deliberately given malaria to treat certain conditions, to, to treat people who were having reactions to, say, disease with syphilis and that sort of thing. So giving people a fever to treat psychological disease and, and psychiatric disease was quite common back in the day. And and it and it, it was described by Hippocrates uh, centuries ago. So yeah. we can still, you know, play on those ancient, that, that yeah. ancient knowledge uh, to help people today to some extent. Extraordinary. And do you think that having that medical element to your life is going to influence the stories that you write? Is that is there always going to be a, a sort of underlying medical theme to your writing? I think so. They always say, don't they, that you should you should write fiction um, about what you know about, you know, what what uh, what is um, second nature to you. And, you know, I still find the drama of medicine captivating. So and ever changing, too. (laughs) uh, Absolutely. I mean, I've been in so many situations during my career where things take your breath away and um, you never forget them things that are dramatic, things that are shocking, things that are um, incredible and, and, and life altering. And I find that quite interesting to write about. And, and, and when I write about it, it usually comes with two reactions to, to readers. And, and that is, oh, my goodness, um, that, that, was, that was quite, um, uh, that was very dramatic and, and quite shocking. So somebody said, I could have done with a bit less of that. Other people say, that was amazing. I could do with a bit more of that. Mm. And I suppose it depends whether you're somebody who is drawn towards intervention and drama, where you're one of those people that, um, you know, finds somebody collapsed and immediately goes to help or someone who stands back and lets somebody else do it. Well, one of the parts of your life I feel I maybe know a bit less about is right back actually at the start of your medical career when you started practising in quite obscure places (laughs) like the most isolated inhabited island in the world. Tell us about that. Yes, I'd done a stint at my training hospital, the Royal Free Hospital. I'd been there for six, seven years doing my training and uh, working in A&E and uh, intensive care. And I was still relatively young. And I, I thought it would be nice to have some adventure before I embarked on a academic career in medicine uh, in, in a city or in the UK. So I saw an advert in the British Medical Journal for a single-handed doctor on the island of Tristan de Cunha. And I didn't actually where know is where that? Tristan de Cunha was. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because I have no idea where it is. <laughs> Well, I looked at it at the map and eventually found it. It's, it's as you say, it's the most isolated inhabited island in the world, right in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean, halfway between South Africa and Uruguay. And it's a British dependency with a population of about 300 people. Really? Yeah. And at the do time, they have a pub and a shop or not? <laughs> they do. They do. And everything is brought by boat. And the boat used, at that time used to come three times a year. So no. it was a fishing trawler, uh, which took about seven or eight of, of us to the island. It moored offshore and little boats came out and picked us up and picked up all the supplies that they would need for the next four months. Must have been like Christmas, supplies. you know, every time the, yeah. the boat was seen. I imagine people flocked to the shore to see what goodies it was bringing. Exactly right. And of course, the boat would sometimes bring a virus with it. Someone would have a cold and everyone would get it because they had no immunity. But it was a fascinating time and it was the only time in in, in my life where whatever happened, I would have to deal with. So if, if somebody 
was going to deliver a baby, if somebody had an appendicitis, if somebody had pneumonia or a head a head wound, it would be me um, dealing with it, me doing x-rays, me doing the surgery and being the, the nurse and the doctor at the same time. A huge challenge. And I would never yes. tackle it today. Um, <laughs> Knowing what you know, you just wouldn't do it. <laughs> it was the impetuosity and the arrogance of youth that uh, encouraged me to do it. But it was a wonderful experience. And I'm happy to report that nobody died whilst I was there. How long were you there? I was there a year in the end because they asked me to stay on for the next boat and then the next boat because uh. they were finding it difficult to recruit anybody. Yeah. But eventually I said, look, my wife is pregnant. I, right. I don't want to deliver my own baby. I yes. will be leaving. Yeah. How extraordinary. But what, as you say, what an amazing baptism by fire. I mean, going into the medical world with that kind of experience, I guess you almost yeah. feel that you're prepared for anything having done that. It was. It was an amazing experience. And after that, I, I kind of fell in love with islands because it was so unique. And I went to Shetland after that, which, which took me out of my love of islands to some extent. But it, but even that was interesting as well. So from islands to TV studios, that's a bit of a stretch. How did that happen? Well, I'd been in general practice by that time for about 10 years. And, and general practice is uh, fascinating and interesting, but also it, there's a large element of bread and butter and that's what you'll be doing for the rest of your life. And I just wanted a, another challenge and I wanted to use some creativity and uh, and, and drama. So I wrote to, uh, and also I was very interested in public health, messaging people to say, you know, this is how it should be. I, I, I was never in favour of very academic medicine and talking in jargon and medical terminology and I always like to put my myself in the patient's shoes and I would explain things in plain English and people respected that and liked that. So I wrote to TVM at the time and said, give us a job. You know, you're using a lot of academic professors who use jargon. What about a bog standard GP like me who could be there on a regular basis and people could get to know me? And that's exactly what the the, the MD at the time was thinking. And I went to meet them. And they uh, they said, we'll try you out for two weeks and see how you go. And, and how many years ago was that? <laughs> yeah, that was 33 years ago. Was it really? Mm. Well, I want to come back and talk more about your medical practice, your TV work. And also, interestingly, I think about where we are going with modern medicine and the current medical system. Let's do that after the break. So don't go away. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, welcome back. And Hilary, I'd love to talk of the moment now we've we've talked historically obviously with your your novel writing and has some fascinating insights into medical history where are we at right now with the current state of our uk gp services and and what can we do as patients to help well i'm fully aware that so many people are saying that they're finding it extremely difficult to get an appointment with their gp they're frustrated uh, they're angry and of course when they don't get that ability to see their GP quickly and there's a problem they tend to go to accident and emergency. Now there are various problems here. This is not good for the NHS, it's not good for GPs and it's not good for patients. When patients go to A&E inappropriately the problem doesn't get sorted out. An urgent issue might be looked at but usually the device is to go home and to put things in train of motion to get it sorted appropriately. So A&E gets bunged up, and that's one of the reasons ambulances are stuck outside accident and emergency departments. A lot of people are going there when they should be seen by a GP. GP is fully qualified. They're capable of doing minor operations. They're capable of running asthma clinics, diabetic clinics. They're capable of so many things. And GPs used to be regarded as the gatekeeper of the NHS. But if you can't see your GP, that's breaking down. And it's a worry. Um, When I was first a GP, I ran a personal list. I would know my patients. They would know me. And we didn't have to duplicate the consultation every time because I knew medication they were on. I knew what their medical history was. It was right in front of me. And we would talk and it would be done effectively and quickly. Now, if you don't see the same doctor twice, you're always starting from the beginning. You have to duplicate everything. And communication is a real problem in the NHS. It can be marvellous when it works well, but it can be immensely frustrating when it doesn't. And recently I had to report on the case of a baby who stopped breathing and the ambulance didn't arrive for 30 minutes after which it was too late to save the baby. And this was no fault of the paramedics who would have been devastated that they didn't get there earlier. But if there aren't the resources, if we don't have enough doctors and demand is still rising... We've got these problems. So we must recruit more people passionate about medicine and a nursing career than we're currently doing. That is going to take time, isn't it? Because even if we achieve that and and we do get more youngsters going into medical school, the training is long. And so, you know, we can be easily looking at a decade or more before we even begin to dial it up a bit. That's right. The the time between entering medical school and practicing as a full-time GP is about 10 years. So that training is absolutely vital. But we also have to look at retention after graduation. 
it's completely right that half of our graduates are female. We need women in medicine. In fact, we have more women in medicine than, than men, in general practice anyway. So that's vital. But of course, many of them will have families and need to go part time. So we lose time with patients that way. Also, in some medical schools, a high proportion of people go on, never practice medicine. They go and work in the city or they go and do something really? else. Or they go overseas. And, you know, we, we, we need to be a little bit more possessive about the graduates we train yes. at enormous cost to the taxpayer. So that at least they do something like a short service commission as they do in the services. So right, we know so we're going to get 10 years work yeah. out of them. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, this is a conversation that unfortunately I think is is going to run and run, but it's really interesting to get a bit of a, an insight and some background into that. And actually talking about background, moving on, you are the doctor credited with diagnosing that our mutual friend, Lorraine Kelly's anxiety symptoms were not in fact potentially a mental health issue, but due to the menopause. So how did that come about? Did you did you spot it with her? Well, of course, I've, I've known Lorraine uh, for as long as I've known you, Liz. Mm. And, and, you know, we, we were on the same show and when we talk um, backstage, as it were. And, you know, I was aware that, that she she had um, symptoms. And, you know, I, I sort of gently a- approached the subject of the menopause, which is insidious. It creeps up on people, even as early as the age of 40. It doesn't just happen overnight. It's uh, the perimenopause can occur over a decade with gradual changes. And and therefore, it's not attributed to cessation of periods or a sudden stop in anything. But gradually, the physical symptoms and the psychological symptoms can combine. And, and women can often feel, I mean, I've known this in general practice, women can often feel bewildered as to the change in them into the fact they can't sleep, they get agitated, their memory can fail, they can't concentrate. We talk about um, changes in the menstrual cycle and we, we talk about changes in skin uh, and we talk about these other physical changes. But actually, women have oestrogen receptors in the brain and, and so when oestrogen becomes depleted, it can affect mental function and psychological symptoms. And, you know, so I just had this gentle conversation with, with Lorraine and suggested we do this and that and do a little bit of investigation. And now she she would never, I think, do without a hormone replacement no, therapy. No, no, she she's talks very publicly vocal. and openly mm. about it. And is a great um, advocate. And it, and it's great that, that you can do that. And that, that is the power of the media, isn't it? That, that you know, we can step in, hopefully, and, and bring about some positive change. What do you make, then, of all the, the recent rise in awareness about hormonal health and, and menopause? Presumably, you're, you're there kind of championing it alongside us all. Oh, yeah, I embrace it. I, I think empowerment is, is so important for individuals, for finding out um, as much as you can about these things. I mean, I'm still a bit surprised that we haven't got there yet because I've mm. been talking about the menopause for so long. Yeah. Um, and, and one has to keep banging that drum because I think it's still a bit of a stigma for some people. It's still misunderstood. Uh, some people say, oh, no, it's natural. You, you don't need these drugs to get through it. But actually, but it's not a drug. I don't regard hormones, my own natural hormones as a drug. It's just like insulin is a natural hormone for a diabetic. They're not, you know, sort of, I don't know, taken to task for replacing what they need. No. Why, why should we be with estrogen? Quite right. Quite right. It, it, it is. I mean, a hundred years ago, women didn't live long past 50. So the menopause 
was never really a great problem in the past, looking back in history. But of course, women are living twice as long now and they want quality of life as well as quantity of life. So it makes absolute sense to replace what is a, a natural hormone as we would do for a patient with Parkinson's who runs out of dopamine or a patient with an underactive thyroid who runs out of thyroid hormone. And I'm quite sure that if men were depleted of um, testosterone, they would demand testosterone on prescription. Oh, it'd be, be way back there. Actually, do you know what? You wouldn't even need a prescription. You'd just be able to walk into your pharmacy and pick it up off the shelf. Or, or, your, right. or your pharmacist, like you, you know, you can do with Viagra. It's, it's just, I think, let's not get started on the healthcare <laughs> gender inequality because sure. there is there is massive, maybe next time. But you know, it's so great to hear you talk about that and, and to have you as part of our Menno Warrior campaign and, and know that you're alongside us on this. Actually, interesting, talking about doctor training, how much training in hormones or actual menopause care did you receive back in the day? Very little. We obviously did our stint in gynaecology and obstetrics, but it, it, it's, it's, it's very physically orientated. So it is, you know, the function of the uterus, the function of the ovaries, uh, about safe delivery. So the psychological aspects of the menopause and that field was was very much neglected. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we have this continuous professional development in in medicine to keep updated. And yet, I think it's absolutely true that one of the reasons that, that, that so many GPs are still fairly lacking in knowledge about the menopause is we're just inundated with the workload. You know, if we're doing 70, 80 hours a week in incessant demands on diagnosis and prescriptions and treatment, how much time is left to read up on new developments? I mean, it does occur. And I think that, that there is a much better knowledge about the menopause and hormones and endocrinology generally. But a GP can't be an expert in everything. He's a, he's a jack of all trades. Yeah. And a specialist is the opposite. You know what a specialist is, Liz? What? A specialist is someone who knows more and more about less and less <laughs> until they know everything about nothing. <laughs> Whereas a GP oh is jack of all trades and knows a little bit about everything or should Yes. Be. There is actually a very good menopause training course accredited to the NHS run by a platform called 14 Fish, which I know does a lot of refresher courses for NHS uh, medics. And it's called Confidence in Menopause. And that actually has been very helpful. Um, I know the menopause charity actually were instrumental in getting that across something like 14,000 GP surgeries yes. and, and, and updating doctors and practice nurses. So, so that true. is that is a good thing. How do you stay on top of changing approaches in, in healthcare? I mean, hormonal health and other things. Do you still practice as a GP? Yes, I do. I'm part time now, which is actually a lovely way to practice medicine because you can give people the time they need. If you're full time, you're, you're really given about seven minutes per patient, which is absolutely inadequate. Um, it's hardly enough to say hello, is it really? Exactly. And if you need to examine a patient and explain the treatment and the options of treatment, uh, you know, it's impossible. It's an impossible ask. And you know, it's one of the reasons why GPs are unhappy at the moment, because we want to practice safely. We want to talk to the patient as a whole, not just talk about their one issue. And it's important that we find the time. And as as a part-time doctor, I can give people the time they want to get to the heart of the problem, to explain, to reassure, to investigate. And that's how medicine should be. 
And in Europe, France and Germany, for example, there are probably twice as many doctors per head of population than we have. So I believe they don't earn as much, but it's, that's not the point. The point is that, you know, to practice medicine with that job satisfaction, we need time with patients. That's what we that's what we want. And I think if there is a strike ballot amongst paramedics, nurses and doctors uh, about their conditions, it, it won't be about pay. It'll be about patient safety. We want to practice good medicine and we want to do it safely. Is it helpful then if you have got such a short allotted appointment time to come in armed with information from Dr. Google and to try and kind of fast track the diagnosis? What, what's your reaction as a GP? Is there a major eye roll or is that actually a helpful thing? What I find helpful is a patient to come in with a written list of their symptoms and a, and a diary. So, for example, with the menopause, a menstrual diary is really helpful. If a patient comes in and says, my periods are irregular, the first question I want to know is, well, how irregular? Are they heavy? Are they light? Are they painful? Are they every week? Are they every three weeks, three months? If you come in with a diary, it's all there. And you can see at a glance what the pattern of the menstrual cycle is. And that's time-saving and very helpful. On the other hand, if, if people have looked at the Daily Mail... <laughs> oh, don't go there. For example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> other, other, other newspapers are, are available, of course. Yeah. Yep. Or Google. You know, you could have gone right down the wrong track. You know, the, the first thing people look at when they look at some websites is if they've got headaches, brain tumour. Oh, well, brain tumour should be right down at the bottom of the list. Yeah. You know, up there should be tension, headache, migraine, dehydration, right. uh, stress. So I think Google has a place. But I think that writing down details of your, your symptoms and what you've noticed, when, how often, duration, severity, type of pain, that's much more important for the doctor to learn about. And actually, just before we leave the subject of menopause, there is a brilliant free menopause app actually called Balance Menopause. And it has exactly that. It has a symptom tracker and so many prompts that you can then fill in precisely so that you can fast track that, that conversation with a GP. Useful to know. So moving on, I know that you spent some time specialising also in ophthalmic health. And I do want to touch on eye care because I think it's one of those things that becomes particularly important as we make our way through midlife. What changes here do we need to be aware of? Oh, I I think um, that there's plenty we can do to protect our eyes. One of the most common conditions, for example, is dry eye syndrome, which is something that people don't know a lot about. But... When we look at a computer, we blink six times less per minute than we do ordinarily. And it's no wonder then with air conditioning and central heating that people complain of dry, gritty lids and sore eyes. Uh, It's important to lubricate the tear film. Uh, So we produce tears, but tears evaporate um, on the surface of our eye without the tear film, which is an oily layer produced by the little glands on our eyelids and these get blocked and we can warm them up with a hot eye compress and we can massage the glands I've done that actually with with my 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 optician sorry to interrupt you my optician said I had blepharitis yeah and told me that I had to put hot compresses on my eyelids that's a thing yeah yeah absolutely because these little oil, oil glands get blocked 
I was horrified when my my eyes were sore um, a little while ago, and I went along to a clinic where they took photographs of the oil glands in my lids, and I could see how inflamed and blocked they were. Ooh. And what they did with the little clamp on my eyelids, they warmed up these glands, uh -huh. liquefied the oil, and expressed the oil. <gasps> to unblock oh the glands. Really? And I've never looked back. I've looked after my, my eyelids since then, and it's made a huge difference to yeah. the soreness that I used to get. That's all gone. And I, I use a bit of lubricating eye drop now and again just to um, replenish the tear film. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that I think we all need to be aware of. And then, of course, sunlight, just as it damages the skin that you know everything about, you know, can lead to cataracts. Um, mm. uh, as well so those regular eye checkups are really important uh, cataract glaucoma of course uh, an asymptomatic silent disease which can gradually damage the peripheral vision so we end up with tunnel vision eye checks are really important and you know even though we're in an economic recession and we're trying to cut back we shouldn't cut back on dental appointments and ear checkups and eye checkups that's important are you a fan of laser eye surgery Yes, I am. I couldn't get on with contact lenses when I reached that age where everything has to be, you know, read at a distance. Exactly. Really. Nothing wrong with my eyes. My arms are just not long enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I remember that. But I, I, I tell you, I remember once I was I was on a, an outside broadcast one early one morning in the winter and I had to try and find the the address of a, a, an old lady who was going to talk to us about some loneliness and isolation in the winter. I was trying to find before satellite navigation. I was trying to find her address on my in my A to Z. Oh, and I those realized days. that the dim light of my car, I couldn't read oh. um, the, the street names, and I had to phone for for guidance as to how to get there. So I, I realized I had to do something, but I couldn't get on with contact lenses, and I couldn't get on with um, bifocals. So I, I I had what they call laser blended vision, where they leave your dominant eye for distance and your non-dominant eye, they laser for reading. And you end up with two different depths of field in each eye, but your brain then accommodates the two fields of vision. So without glasses, you can look into the distance and you can read as well. And that, that so suited clever. me very well. That's really clever, isn't it? I mean, I'm I'm also a big fan of laser eye surgery, having had that in the past. And I just think that our eyes are so precious. Um, you know, it really is worth looking at the best ways to, to take care of them. You must go to the right people. That's yeah. important. You're absolutely right. Spot on. And actually talking about kind of taking care of ourselves as we age. I don't mind sharing with you um, because we know each other well and obviously there's nobody else listening. Um, you know, I do have a big birthday next year. I'm going to be 60. You're going to be 70. You absolutely do not look it. Have you felt any particular pressure being on TV to look a certain way? I mean, I know that a lot of, you know, ageing female colleagues do feel pressure. Do you think that there's a, a disparity between men and women on TV? And, and do you feel anything yourself? I, I, there is a, a, a disparity. I, I think women are unfairly discriminated against as, as they get older and jobs might disappear. Perhaps that's more likely. Um, personally, I have never let TV fame go to my head. I've always been very level-headed. I, I see myself as a as a doctor who just happens to be on TV delivering public health messages. And whilst you know getting a bit of 
attention is very pleasant usually sometimes yeah <laughs> um i don't work too hard at it i mean i i i spend very little time in the um in the makeup room in fact um, right. I, I i do my own since the pandemic um, do you what 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 do you do i mean you just have to wear a bit of powder and sort of base do you just a, a to bit say it's washed out mascara yeah yeah a little bit um, do you so yeah. a bit of anti shine a bit of powder um bit of mascara for the missing third of one eyebrow after after a <laughs> bike accident oh no and that's about it um <laughs> yeah and i you know i i uh i'm of an age where i i, you know, I really don't mind if uh I, I i refused a hair transplant a few years ago yeah I wasn't and your hair is now pretty white isn't it yeah yeah but 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 and it's good it, look, it looks funky i have to say you know you've got quite a choppy haircut it's yeah i mean it's, know, it's it, kind it, of it is what it is but for me um how i feel is much more important than that how, mm. how other people see me and i mean exercise has always been a a very important thing for me and it's kept me I think it's kept me on my toes and it's kept me um as, as young as yeah. I can be and it'll always be part of my life. What other daily kind of non-negotiables do you have to keep yourself physically or perhaps even mentally vibrant? I've always been an optimist so I, I have this amazing capacity to see everything as an opportunity rather than as a complaint. Um, good. You, you know good I, I think that you know we all have to face difficulties and problems but I always seem to say well that's happened but on the other hand there's this and I and I do think that generally as we face the challenges in society coming our way in the next decade we must be more grateful for the things we have and demand less and we must expect that sometimes have to get used to a standard of living that wasn't quite as good as it was and be grateful for the wonderful things that that we do have at our fingertips and think about other people who don't gratitude is the most fantastically life enhancing attribute isn't it if we can weave a bit more gratitude into our lives and a bit more kindness a little less anger um i've always found that being kind to people is is wonderfully uplifting it actually gives one a sense of feeling you know that's something good that that's happened today and, and and people are generally very grateful yeah. for it. Yeah, giving to others gives back to ourselves, mm. definitely. What about some of the, the kind of biohacking things, things that I'm super interested in personally, things like intermittent fasting, you know, time-restricted eating. Do you embrace any of that? Well, I, I, intermittent fasting was something that, that sort of occurred completely by accident with me. So, uh, you know, when one's distracted from the hunger of boredom through work, we don't eat those unnecessary calories. So when I'm working early in the morning, for example, I won't have breakfast and I'm quite happy to be busy and work through till later in the day before I've eaten. And that often means that I've intermittently fasted since the night before um, without even trying. Gosh, so you're getting that health benefit and you're resting your gut microbes, you know, unconsciously. Yeah. Yeah. And and it is, it is the case when um, you know, the weekend arrives or I'm on holiday that... Actually, you you think well, a breakfast would be nice, but one you know I don't think about it the rest of the yeah. time, and then combined with exercise, and I I, I know people are, are amazed and they say, oh, how can you get through to lunchtime without having anything to eat? But it's it's not even it's not even something I think about. No, a cup really... of tea, fine, and that's enough. Yeah, absolutely. What about things like cold water swimming? Are you tempted? You know, Wim Hof, all of that. We're we going to see you in an ice bath anytime soon. Well, I have done. I, I I did the Great North Swim a few years ago. That did was you? Windermere, and I think That's that was cold. about um, eight degrees. And I can see why people will get addicted to that. 
Unfortunately, I don't live very near a stretch of water. You can have a cold shower. That's what I do. Oh, I can have a cold mornings. shower. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I could certainly have a cold shower. And, and I and I, I I like sort of if it's raining, it doesn't stop me going out for a walk with the dog. Um, so, so I can get down and dirty with the earth and do a bit of you know heavy gardening. I don't do fussy gardening, but but the heavy stuff, I'm quite <laughs> happy to go and chop up logs and things like that in, in any yeah. in any kind of weather. And I and I do think you know getting down and dirty with nature is quite important for me that lovely smell of the the earth after it's rain petri um it's just beautiful i can't beat it that's interesting because you i have to say you and i haven't always seen eye to eye perhaps over some of the more say alternative therapies and, and practices gaining popularity but is it fair to say that you dismiss all of these always in favour of, of more allopathic treatment? Or are there some things that we can agree on from the natural world that are, are beneficial? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, uh, <laughs> oh, good. You know, yeah, I mean, aromatherapy is, is Love wonderful. That. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that that can be a great um, a source of relaxation. Massage is underrated. Uh, occasion. I mean, when I did Dancing on Ice, I was introduced to a, a sports um, masseuse who was who just incredible. And, and if I'm feeling that my joints and my muscles are a little bit knotted up, uh, mm. I'll give her a call and, you know, I can get off that couch feeling like a million dollars. So I think massage is underrated. Uh, I, I think certain supplements are useful um, mm. at certain times of life. And I, I think there are many. I mean, there are alternative therapies that I, I don't particularly agree with uh, uh, and support, such as iridology, such as... Yeah. Yeah. reflexology i like having my feet oh rubbed, but... reflexology come on no. that is my favorite thing is it but i uh, i love having my feet rubbed but i'm not oh, sure it's more than that. that having a thumb massaging a point in my foot is going to alter my bowel well do you know i remember my very very first reflexology treatment i mean 30 40 years ago thinking this is just a foot massage and it was only when the reflexologist was sort of moving her thumb up and down a particular part of my foot and she's saying hmm yeah, there's a yeah. Your vertebrae was it your seventh vertebrae on the left? There's was there an issue there, and that was literally about two months before where I'd really hurt my back, and I thought that is extraordinary. I'd that not said anything. You know, you pick that up, mm. and I actually do have reflexology probably a couple of times a month, and will pick up little things. You know, sometimes I remember actually recently a reflexologist said, "Oh, I'm you know, is your throat okay?" And I've said, "Yeah, that's absolutely fine." She said, "Oh, that's funny. I just you know can." detect a little bit of imbalance or something and 24 hours later I had a sore throat now whether wow. she brought it on <laughs> I hope not or whether it was kind of brewing there oh well maybe um, I should try it again okay Open okay my mind. well there we go <laughs> and actually you and I did reconnect with each other at an event where we were looking at the benefits of echinacea mm. which was also very interesting wasn't it yes. to, to actually look at that as you know potentially help for antiviral and colds and flus Yes. And, and that whole kind of Swiss German botanical healthcare history, which I think, you know, perhaps we could learn something a little bit more from maybe. Of course. I mean, we, we so many of the pharmaceutical medicines are produced from plants. It absolutely makes sense to look at other things. And echinacea has been talked about for years as a herbal remedy for the prevention of viral infections, colds and there is a growing body of evidence of randomized controlled trials yeah. that, that supports the use of echinacea on an intermittent basis to um, boost the immune system and prevent colds and, and coughs. 
we're likely to see more of them this winter because with all the precautions we've been taking about COVID-19, mm. we've reduced our immunity. We've, we've been protected from colds and coughs, but they're, they're going to be coming back. So if you want to take extra zinc, if you want to take a bit of echinacea and boost your immune system by healthy, healthy living, then no harm done, certainly. Excellent. Love it. Love it. Love it. And in the future, is writing going to take over from your TV and media work? Are you, are you ever going to be allowed to retire and put your feet <laughs> up? Do you even want to? Well, I, I do. I do. I do keep myself busy in my time off. And, you know, I, 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 I love doing all sorts of things. But um, I, I think if I can do them all in tandem for a little while longer, I, I'll enjoy that. I certainly enjoy writing. I certainly enjoy the TV. And I enjoy seeing patients still because, you know, that's 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 my roots, if you like. And, uh, you know, when someone's worried and anxious and they, they can't get the help they need, just sitting down with them and saying, come on, what's on your mind? Let's investigate and explain to them where they are. I mean, that's immensely rewarding. So if I can combine all these things together, variety is the spice of life. And um, whilst I'm enjoying it, I'll carry on. Dr. Hilary Jones, a pleasure as always to chat and very best of luck with the new novel, Eye of the Storm, out now. It's a good read. Well, if you missed last week's episode, that was with the psychotherapist Lucy Beresford and she gave me a lot to think about when it comes to dating after divorce. And you can go back and listen to that whenever you like. And if you continue to scroll back, you will find some other brilliant chats that we've had recently. Everything from workplace confidence in midlife to the therapeutic practice of tapping. I wonder what Hillary would make of that. Well, join me back here next week. Until then, do join us for more conversations on social media at Lizelle Me and at Lizelle Wellbeing. All of us here always love reading your reviews on whatever podcast platform you like listening on to. Well, until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas... You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kristen. And this is Jen from My Mom So Hard. And we're here to talk about By Heart. Do you remember when you were nursing and you were like, I want to give the best thing I can to my baby? Well, we've got that for you. It's called By Heart, and it is a infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Curious about By Heart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with code MOMS20 for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. Tell them my mom so hard sent you. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. 
So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.